This morning we are going to read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 11. The sermon will only be on verse 3, Exodus 20, 1 through 11. And then we will also read from the New Testament, John 14, 15 through 24. Exodus 20, 1 through 11, John 14, 15 through 24. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And made it holy. Let us go now to John chapter 14, and we will read verses 15 through 24. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Today we will be considering the first of the Ten Commandments, which is, You shall have no other gods before me. And before we get to the commandment itself, I have five brief points to make by way of introduction. Really these are reminders of things that were said in previous sermons regarding these Ten Commandments and their relationship to the other laws that were given to Israel in the days of Moses when God entered into a covenant with them. And so I would ask you to please bear with me as I attempt to shore up our foundational understanding of the law of God just a little bit more. One, we must remember that the Ten Commandments contain a summary of God's moral law. The Ten Words that were given to Israel on Sinai were not totally unique to them. 
nor were they new. No, instead, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. These laws were as true and binding on Adam in the Garden of Eden as they are for us today. This moral law, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, was written on man's heart at creation. It continues as a rule of life even now. And by this law, all men will be judged on the last day, if not in Christ. And so it is essential for us to remember that as we consider each of the Ten Commandments one by one, here we have a summary of God's moral law. It is eternal in the sense that it comes from God. It is a reflection, a manifestation of His holiness. It is for us. It was for Adam. It was for Abraham. It was for Moses and David and all who lived in those days. It was for those who lived in the days of Christ. It is for us too. The Ten Commandments contain a summary of the ever-abiding and universal moral law of God. And they should matter deeply to us, brothers and sisters. I would encourage you to memorize them if you do not have them memorized already. Two. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel on Sinai, He did so while entering into a covenant of works with them. This also is important to recognize. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel in those days. In the days of Abraham, the Lord made a covenant with the Hebrews, wherein He promised to give them the land of Canaan, and to make them into a great nation, among other things. And in the days of Moses, the Lord made another covenant with Israel. It did not replace the covenant made with Abraham, but it built upon it and expanded it. In the covenant that God made with Israel in the days of Moses, it was communicated clearly that Israel would be blessed in the land that would be graciously given to them so long as they kept the covenant. Do you remember this? If they were to be blessed in this land that God was going to give to them, they needed to keep the covenant. As I have said, this was a covenant of works. Israel would be blessed in the land if they obeyed. Israel would be cursed in the land and even cast out of it if they disobeyed. And we know this in fact happened. These were the terms of the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. It was a covenant of works that could be kept. It was a covenant of works that could be broken. And what would the people of Israel need to keep? What would they need to do? What rules would they need to obey to obtain the blessings of God? They would need to obey God's law. And here I am reminding you that the Ten Commandments, wherein we find a summary of the moral law of God, functioned as the foundation or core of all of the other laws that God gave to Israel, whether civil or ceremonial. Are you tracking with me? We will encounter civil laws, laws that were used to, to govern the nation of Israel. We will encounter ceremonial laws, laws that governed the worship of the people of Israel. And I am saying that the Ten Commandments functioned as the cornerstone, the foundation, the core, whatever term you prefer, of all of the other laws that were given to Israel in the days of, Mo in the days of Moses. This is why the Ten Commandments were given first. They were most foundational. This is why the Lord spoke them directly to the people of Israel. He uttered them to them. They heard His voice and pled with Moses that no further word be spoken to them by the Lord, but that God speak to Moses and Moses to them. He uttered these words to the people of Israel. This is why the Lord would write them, the Ten Commandments, on tablets of stone with His own finger or hand, if you will. These laws, the Ten Commandments, were revealed in a special way because they were most fundamental to the law code that was given to Israel uh, when the Lord 
redeemed them from Egypt and entered into the covenant of works with them at Sinai. Three, when the Lord entered into that covenant of works with Israel through Moses, He stated blessings for keeping the covenant, and He stated curses also. And I want you to pay careful attention to this. The blessings for keeping the covenant were not the forgiveness of sins or eternal life. Did you hear that? In the covenant that God made with Israel in the days of Moses, He clearly communicated that the people would be blessed if they kept the covenant. The implication is that they would be cursed if they disobeyed the covenant. But the stated blessings of the covenant were not the forgiveness of sins or life eternal, but rather blessed life on earth and the land that the Lord had promised to graciously give them. This is a crucially important observation. When the Lord entered into covenant with Israel through Moses, He did not say, If you keep the terms of this covenant, you will be forgiven of your sins, justified before me, and saved for all eternity. He did not say that. No, the Lord said, If you keep the covenant, you will be my treasured possession on earth. Pay careful attention to this. Israel's redemption was earthly. What were they redeemed from, brothers and sisters? They were redeemed from bondage in Egypt. The redemption they enjoyed was earthly. The land that was promised to them was earthly. They were promised Canaan, not heaven, not the new heavens and earth, but Canaan. The blessings promised to them upon obedience were earthly too. The curses for disobedience were earthly To state the matter differently, when the Lord entered into covenant with Israel in the days of Moses, He did not make salvation obtainable through obedience to the law. So many people misunderstand this. He did not make salvation obtainable through obedience to the law. No, He he did not do that. So, how were men and women saved in those days? Could they be saved? Yes, of course they could be saved. How were they saved then? Answer, they were saved in the same way that men and women have been saved from their sins ever since the fall, that is through faith in the promised Messiah. The old Mosaic Covenant did not, in and of itself, offer the forgiveness of sins. You understand? Yes, the sacrificial system would provide a way for the people to be cleansed as it pertained to life in the land. But the the blood of bulls and goats did not take away sin. The old Mosaic Covenant itself did not provide for the forgiveness of sins. It did not offer life eternal. That offer only comes through the new covenant and through the shed blood of Jesus the Christ who was the Messiah. Only the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, offers the forgiveness of sins. So those who were truly forgiven, justified, and made righteous under the old covenant, men like Moses, King David, and many others, were justified not by the works of the law, and not by looking to the old covenant itself and to its ordinances, but by believing in the promises of God regarding the Messiah. Those promises were given first to Abraham, excuse me, first to Adam, also to Abraham. They were greatly expanded even in the days of of Moses, yes, They were contained within this old Mosaic covenant, but they pointed forward to something. I've told you this. Promises look forward to something, don't they? If I say I promise to do this or that to you, I'm saying I will do it later. Trust me now. And that is what God was doing for His people from Adam's day onward, saying, I will do it later. Trust me now. 
I will do it later. I will provide for the forgiveness of sins later. Trust me now. So these promises were spoken to them. And these promises were also pictured before those who lived under the Mosaic Covenant through the ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Covenant system. But note this, to be saved from their sins, the saints of old had to look to the future, to the Christ who was to come, and to the New Covenant, which is the covenant of grace. Four, the Ten Commandments functioned in four ways for Old Covenant Israel. One, they functioned as a rule of life. Here's how you're to live. They revealed the right way for men and women to live on earth. Two, they served to restrain sin in a general way in that nation. Three, they showed men and women that they were sinners and in need of a Savior. In fact, that was greatly amplified by the law that was given to Israel in the days of Moses. That law greatly magnified sin in that it made it obvious so that men and women, even in those days, were driven to faith in the Messiah. For, as I've said, the Ten Commandments functioned as a foundation for all of the other laws that would be imposed upon Israel under the covenant of works that God made with them. And my fifth and final introductory observation is this. The Ten Commandments are for Christians today. The Ten Commandments are for Christians today. It is true that there are some things said in the Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. And they are not for us, therefore. And we will look at those. I've already mentioned them. Seventh day, Sabbath. Blessing in the land for children who are obedient and honoring to their parents. Curses that befell idolaters to the third and fourth generation. We will look at those. Nevertheless, the moral law of God, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, is for us. God in His mercy uses the moral law even now to restrain evil in the world. God uses the moral law to show us our sin and to convince us of our need for Christ. And God uses the moral law to teach us how we are to live in the world. God spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel from Sinai when He entered into a special covenant with them through Moses after redeeming them from Egypt and before bringing them into the promised land of Canaan. But the moral law is precious to all who live now under the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is not without law, brothers and sisters. Law and grace, law and gospel are not contrary to one another. To use the language of our confession, law and gospel, law and grace, sweetly comply. They work together. The question is, what role does the law play in the new covenant? What role does it play? And we will soon find out. As we turn now to the first of the Ten Commandments, I would like to consider it in three parts. One, we will consider the law itself. Two, we will attempt to get to the heart of the matter. And three, we will consider the gospel. So first, the law. Second, the heart of the matter. Third, the gospel. First, the law. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first of the Ten Commandments. One question we must ask about this commandment is, what do the words before me mean? You shall have no other gods before me. What do the words before me mean? Do the words before me mean above me? You can see how they could be taken that way, can't you? Taken in that way, God would simply be saying, I must be your number one God. 
or at least tied for number one. You may have other gods so long as they are not equal to me or lesser than me, before me. Um, I must be number one. But that is not what before me means. Instead, the words before me mean in my presence or before my face. God sees all. He even sees the heart of man. And in the first commandment, God is saying that He must be our only God. And we are to have Him as God and none other. God looks down from heaven, as it were, and He dwells in the midst of His people. His people must be careful to put no other gods in God's place or before His face. Do you understand? That is what the commandment is here forbidding. Our catechism actually addresses this question. In question 53, um, we read, What are we especially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? Answer, these words before me in the first commandment. Teach us that God, who seeth all things, taketh notice of, and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. How many gods are there, brothers and sisters? We teach our children to say, there's only one God. There's only one. This one God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And besides Him, there is none other. He is the one and only God. Everything else that exists is His creation. So you have God, and you have creation. His creation may be divided into two realms, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, the visible realm and the invisible realm. You see, there is God, and there is creation, And in His creation there is the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. So if there is only one God truly, where do these other gods that people have, which are forbidden in the first commandment, where do they come from? And the answer is that men and women make gods for themselves out of the things that the one true God has made. They sin in a terrible way by treating created things as if they were the creator of all things. Some will worship creatures of the heavenly and invisible realm. They will worship angels or demons as if they were divine. But they are not divine, really. They are angelic beings that God has made. They are creatures, not the creator. Others will worship creatures of the earthly and physical realm, We know that some have worshipped earthly kings as if they were divine. Others worship nature. Still others worship their ancestors or saints by bowing down to them and praying to them. So when we speak of men and women worshipping other gods, we do not mean that there are in fact other gods, but that men and women make gods for themselves out of the things which the one true God has made. So what is the first of the Ten Commandments? Simply this. You shall have no other gods before me. Let us go now to the heart of the matter and ask, What does this commandment require of us, and what does it forbid? You will notice that the first commandment is stated negatively. In fact, all but the fourth and fifth commandments are stated in a negative way. By negative I mean that the commandments tell us what not to do. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, etc. The fourth and fifth are stated positively. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. The thing to recognize is that when a command is stated negatively, 
the positive side is implied and vice versa, right? When the command is stated negatively, do not do this, the positive side, do this instead, is implied by the commandment. And the same may be said of the opposite. When we are told to remember the Sabbath day, we are also being told not to violate it. And when we are told to honor father and mother, we are being told to not dishonor them. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So what does it forbid? Our catechism provides a very good answer to the question. The first commandment forbids the denying or not worshipping and glorifying the true God as God and our God, and the giving that worship and glory to any other which is due unto Him alone. That is Baptist Catechism 52. I think, brothers and sisters, that it would be very, very good for us to reflect deeply upon the question, what does the first commandment forbid? I'm afraid that we often think very superficially about the Ten Commandments. We need to reflect deeply upon the question, what does the first commandment forbid? I am afraid that many will read or hear the first commandment and think only in a superficial way about it. We hear the command, you shall have no other gods before me, and think, so long as I do not bow down before false gods, I'm good. Right? So long as I don't visit a temple of a false god, then then I have kept the first commandment. But there is more to it, I think. Again, our confession helps us to see that there is more to it. What is forbidden in the first commandment, our catechism rather, the first commandment forbids the denying or not worshipping and glorifying the true God and our, as our God, and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to His name alone. I, I want you to notice how in the answer to the question, what does the first commandment forbid, we find mention both of sins of omission and sins of commission. I'd like for you to allow me to define those terms. I think they are very helpful terms. We confess that sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. When we transgress God's law, we sin. Think about that for a moment. The world really does not agree with this. For many within the world, we sin, or they would not even use that term, would they? They would say we do wrong, or we do something worthy of condemnation or, or canceling nowadays, right? We, we, we sin, the world says, when we violate what? They give no thought to God or to His law. We, we sin, we do wrong, something worthy of condemnation, when we violate social norms, or the opinion of the so-called majority, or the opinion of the powerful, right? So we sin, the world thinks, not against God, they give no thought to Him, but against man, against culture, against the prevailing norms of our time. But we say no, we sin when we violate God's law, which He has revealed in nature and much more clearly in Scripture. We sin not against the opinions of man or the norms of culture, but against God and His revealed will. In other words, God is the standard. God determines what is right and wrong, and He has revealed His standard to man in the world and through His Word. As I look at your faces now, I could see you notice how significant this little simple observation is how wrong the world gets this, but yet it is fundamental to the Christian faith. Sin is any lack of conformity unto our transgression of the law of God. 
When we sin, we transgress God's law, and we sin in two ways. One, we sin against God when we fail to do what He has commanded. These are called sins of omission. To omit is to leave out or to exclude. So if God tells us to do something, for example, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, then we sin a sin of omission by failing to do so. When God's law requires us to do this or that, and we fail to do this or that, we sin a sin of omission. Two, we sin against God when we do that which He has forbidden. These are called sins of commission. To to commit is to carry out something, or to perform, or to act. And we sin, sins of commission, when we do, actively do, what God has forbidden. You shall not steal, God says. And if we steal, we sin a sin of commission. For then we have done that which God has forbidden us to do in His Word. So we sin when we fail to conform to God's law, or when we transgress God's law. In other words, we sin when we break God's law, either by failing to do what God has commanded, or by doing that which He has forbidden. I think these categories are immensely helpful, for they allow us to think about God's law in a thorough way. Not in a superficial way, but in a thorough way. Again, I would assume that many people would think that they are good as it pertains to the first commandment, so long as they don't bow down in worship before kings, or demons, or some other creaturely thing, as if they were divine. God's law says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the one who has a superficial understanding of God's law says, no problem, I've never worshipped a false god in my life. First, I doubt that's true, and we'll come to that. Secondly, I ask, is that really all the first commandment requires and forbids? In other words, have we kept the law, the first commandment, in the heart? Have we kept the heart of it? By simply abstaining from the worship of false gods. I say no. What does the first commandment forbid then? Well, the most obvious thing it forbids is giving worship and glory to any other which is due unto God alone. God is God. He is the only one. Everything else is His creation. God is to be worshipped. Creatures are not to be worshipped. Do not give that worship and glory to any other which is due unto God alone. When God's law forbids us from having other gods before Him, that which He requires of us is strongly implied. Not only are we to not worship false gods, we are also not to deny or fail to worship and glorify the true God as God and our God. Are you following me? So this isn't just about not doing something. Don't bow down and worship to false gods. This is about doing something. And what is the thing that we are to do? As God's creatures, what is the thing, the first thing that we are to do? Don't bow down to false gods. Don't do that. What is the thing we are to do? Worship God. You're to have Him as as God. He's to be your God. And you are to live your entire life in light of that reality. You are to honor Him as God. You are to give Him the worship that is due to His name. You're beginning already to think, maybe I have violated this law in thought and word and indeed, a moment ago, I said that I think it would be good for us to reflect deeply upon God's commandments. And to do so, we must first understand what God's law requires and forbids. We know what it forbids. What does it require? I quote now from Baptist Catechism 51. It requires us to know and acknowledge God, to be the only true God and our God, 
and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. So we understand what God's law, the first commandment, requires and forbids. But to reflect deeply upon God's commandments, we must also examine ourselves to ask, Have I sinned against God and His law, either by failing to do what He has required or by doing that which He has forbidden? There's yet more for us to consider. We ought also to ask the question, Have I kept this law not only in an external way, but also in the mind and in the heart? Brothers and sisters, I'm sure you understand that it, is a, that it is possible to obey God's law externally or superficially while violating the very same law in the heart. You understand this is possible. Jesus spoke to this, didn't He? He was often interacting with Pharisees who thought they were righteous because they kept the law of God in an external way. They followed all the rules externally, you know. But what they failed to realize is that God's law is to be kept from the heart. The command, you shall not commit adultery, also forbids lust in the heart. Jesus made this clear. The command, you shall not murder, forbids hatred in the heart, etc. And do not forget how Christ summarized the law of God. This is very significant right here. Christ was asked what the most important commandment is by that lawyer. How did he reply to the lawyer? He replied to him saying, well, I have two for you. Not one, but two. And on these two, all of the other commandments hang. They all kind of depend upon these. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that interesting? Here are the two commandments upon which all of the others hang. That would include the ten, wouldn't it? The ten depend upon these two. Christ said this, this is about love for God. This is about love for neighbor. Think about that, brothers and sisters. What did Christ say was the essence of the law of God? Love is the essence. Love for God and love for neighbor is the heart of the matter. And as you know, Jesus did not invent this idea, but was simply quoting from the law of Moses itself to make the point. When He said that we are to love God with all that is in us, He was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5. And when he said that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, he was quoting from Leviticus 19.18. The point is this, God wants your heart. He demands it. Never has he been interested in superficial, heartless worship. In fact, this kind of worship is most displeasing to him. And this is why the psalmist spoke to God saying, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. What is the psalmist saying here? I mean, God commanded that sacrifices be offered up. What does he mean that God does not want it? He, he, he simply reflected upon this, this fundamental truth that God is not interested in superficial, external forms of worship. Don't go through the motions with God. But rather love God and worship Him from the very core of your being. God demands your heart, brothers and sisters. So when God says, You shall have no other gods before Me, he forbids us from giving that worship and glory to any other which is due unto His name alone. And He requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. All true. But this worship 
is to be from the heart. God sees your heart, friend. And I ask, will you mock God by bringing Him heartless and faithless worship? I say, Lord, have mercy on us. So how is this first commandment to be applied? The most obvious application is to cease from worshipping false gods. Cease from worshipping false gods. In the ancient world in which Israel lived, all of the nations that surrounded them worshipped many gods. Nations would have national gods. Families would have family gods. And individuals would have individual gods. And so worshipping many gods was the norm. These gods were often associated with different parts of the natural world. So to worship this God would bring blessings as it pertained to fertility, and to worship that God would bring blessings as it pertained to protection, and so on. To worship one God, and to claim that this one God was the only God, was virtually unheard of in the ancient world, and yet this is what the Lord demanded from His people, Israel. He redeemed them. And He said, you were to have me alone as God, for indeed I am the one and only You're to have no other gods before me. You and I live in a culture that has been greatly impacted by the Judeo-Christian belief that there is but only one God. So monotheism is familiar to us. It's familiar even to those around us who do not profess faith in Christ. But when the Lord spoke to Israel saying, You shall have no other gods before me, this was radical. Certainly they were tempted to go the way of the nations. They were tempted to have Yahweh as their national god but to worship other gods too, alongside Him, for good measure. And if you know Israel's history, you know that they often succumbed to that temptation. The Lord would have none of it. You shall have no other gods before Me, He said. And yet we do know that Israel was often idolatrous. There were even times when other gods were worshipped in God's temple. And the temple had to be therefore cleansed. Did you know that in the earliest days of the church, so we're fast forwarding now to the time of Christ, Christians were accused by their Roman neighbors of being atheists? Did you know that? Sounds strange, doesn't it? In fact, many Christians were put to death by the Romans because they were considered to be atheists. It sounds strange to to call Christians atheists, but it makes sense if you see it from the viewpoint of the Romans. The Christians refused to worship the Greco-Roman gods. They would not do it. They refused to offer incense to a statue of the emperor and to call him Lord. From the Roman vantage point, the Christians were atheists. They denied the gods, or so they thought. And they were often Blamed, therefore, for the troubles that fell upon the empire. If there was a famine, whose fault was it? It was the Christians' fault because they are the ones that deny the gods who bless us as it pertains to the crops, you see. Uh, If a foreign invader came and overpowered them, the Christians were to blame because they denied the gods that brought protection to the nation. And so they were often violently persecuted by the Romans because they were considered to be atheists. But the Christians could not worship both Yahweh and Caesar, or Yahweh and Zeus, for God has said, you shall have no other gods before me. They could not bow down before these gods or worship them. 
And we should not forget that we have many, many brothers and sisters in Christ living in parts of the world today where polytheism is still the norm. In India, for example, there are many temples and shrines peppered throughout the cities. They're huge. They're lit up at night. You can see them. And many homes have shrines within them and at the front door of the home. And Christians who live in places like these find themselves in very challenging circumstances. The cultural pressure to worship the gods of the nation or the gods of their ancestors is is tremendous. It's immense. But what has the Lord said? You shall have no other gods before me. The Christian cannot worship Yahweh and Brahma or Yahweh and Vishnu. To do so would be to sin, a sin of commission as it pertains to the first commandment. Again, the most obvious application of the first commandment is to cease worshiping false gods. Brothers and sisters, if it is your custom to worship other gods besides the one true God, you must cease. Do away with the shrines. Do not bow down to, pray to, venerate, or worship any created thing but God only. Do not worship angels or demons, ancestors or saints, the stars or the trees. Again I say, do not bow down to pray to or venerate any created thing. Worship God alone. But let us be sure to apply this not merely in an external way, but also in the heart. I want you to track with me here. Worship is from the heart. And what do men and women do in the heart when they bow down before a false god? You see what they do with the body. They bow down before the false god. You see what they do with their lips. They, they pray to the false god. And I am asking the question, what are they doing in the heart when they perform that act? If they worship sincerely, they have in the heart some sort of reverential fear for the god they worship. They honor the so-called god. They trust the so-called god. Their hope rests upon the god in one way or another. They take pleasure in the god. They find peace in the god that they worship. The point that I am making is this. Those who bow down before false gods do so because of what is in their mind and heart. And it is possible, therefore, and even quite common... For men and women to worship false gods in the heart, even if they never pray to a statue or bow before a shrine. Idolatry will be forbidden in the second commandment. But I am saying to you that it is is possible to violate the first commandment without violating the second. It is possible to have a false god in the heart, though you may never erect a shrine and bow down before it, you see. Sometimes... Our false worship is visible. Sometimes it remains rather invisible. False worship is easy to identify when it takes the form of idolatry. But the first commandment can also be violated without idols. It can be violated in the heart and in the mind. This form of false worship can be much more difficult to discern, but it's not impossible to discern it, brothers and sisters. It simply takes work. It takes reflection. Let me ask you a few questions to see if there is a false God in your heart. What do you fear the most? What do you fear the most? Who do you respect the most? Who do you trust in supremely? Who or what brings you the most pleasure What brings you ultimate peace? 
What brings you ultimate satisfaction? What do you live for above all else? The words, the most, supremely, ultimate, and above all are very important parts of those questions that I've just asked you. When trying to discern who or what our God is truly, we must deal with ultimate questions. If I asked you simply this, what brings you satisfaction? And you said, one thing that brings me satisfaction is spending time with my family and friends. I would not charge you with having a false God. Family and friends are gifts from God. They're meant to be enjoyed. But please hear me. They cannot be enjoyed in an ultimate way. They cannot be ultimate for us. What brings you ultimate satisfaction? That's a different question. And I'm afraid that many in this world, if they were to answer honestly, would say, family, friends, financial security, etc. What do you fear the most? The most? Who do you trust supremely? What brings you ultimate peace? If men and women were honest, they would say many things. But they would neglect to say, God alone. Perhaps another way to get at the heart of the issue would be to ask, Who or what? Is your greatest love? Who or what is your greatest love? Is it your spouse, your children, your home, your money, your security, your health, your future plans, your nation, your comfort, your freedom? What is it that you love the most? And I would urge you, brothers and sisters, to be honest with yourself about this. Be honest with God. Please don't misunderstand me here. It is not that we are to love God alone. That is not what I am saying. It is right for us to have other loves too. After all, the Scriptures command it, don't they? Scriptures say, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, The Scriptures say that we in Christ are to love one another. Husbands are to love their wives, etc. But God is to be loved supremely. He is to be loved supremely. And here is the real key... God alone is to be loved as God. There is a special kind of love that God is to, is to have you know, in our hearts. Everything else is to be loved, but in its proper place in a way and in a way that is fitting given its nature and purpose. Are you following with me? Who do you love the most? I would hope that you would say, I love God the most. And it's not only a matter of degree, you know. I love God, um, and the number I would give to it is 77, and I love my wife at the level of 76. That's really not what we're talking about here. We're talking about ultimate things. Who do you love the most? Who is your supreme love? It, It must be God, and we must love God alone in a way that is fitting. We must love God as God and no other thing. The first commandment is first for a reason, brothers and sisters. If we get this wrong, nothing else will be right. If we get this wrong, nothing else will be right. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord says. And so, brothers and sisters, I have a question for you. Have you obeyed this law perfectly? We confess that we have violated this law in thought word and deed. God's law is of use to us in that it tells us how we ought to live. We ought to live 
believing in God, having God as our God, giving Him the glory, honor, and praise that is due to His most holy name. Uh, That is the way of life abundant. And as you can see, God's law is also useful to us in that it shows us our sin and convinces us of our need for a Savior. You just confess that you have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. I hope that you were truly convinced of that and meant it when you said it. So this means you are a lawbreaker, so am I. And the law condemns you, it condemns me. We stand guilty before God, if left to ourselves. That's the bad news. Now for the gospel, which means good news. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, kept this law perfectly. Not only did He keep the first commandment, but all ten. And not only did He keep the ten, but the two which summarized them. He loved God and neighbor perfectly so. And not only did He keep the moral law of God, He also kept the other laws of Moses too. For He was born a Jew and lived under the old Mosaic covenant. Christ, the second Adam, the true and perfect man, was sinless in every respect. He was righteous. And this is why He can give His righteousness as a gift to all who believe upon Him. Jesus Christ the Messiah obeyed God's revealed will perfectly. And so also He submitted Himself to God to suffer in the place of of those given to Him by the Father in eternity. You may see John 17 about this. He suffered in the whole of life, and He suffered supremely on the cross where He died, not for His own sins, for He did not have any, but for the sins of His people. The wages of sin is death, and Christ died in the place of sinners. He paid for the sins of others. He bore the wrath of God. He died and was buried, and on the third day He rose again, defeating sin, Satan, and death. This is why Christ has the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to offer to all those who believe in Him. He can offer His righteousness. He could also offer the forgiveness of sins, for He has atoned for sins, and life eternal, because He has earned life eternal. Lastly, Jesus Christ the Messiah applies the salvation He has earned to those given to Him by the Father through the preaching of the Word of God and by the working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit regenerates the elect in due time, making them willing and able to believe in Christ to the salvation of their souls. And the Spirit renews those who believe so that they desire to keep God's law. He empowers them and refines them continuously through a variety of means so that they are progressively sanctified. Those regenerated and renewed by the Word and Spirit will over time come to love God and His law more and more and to hate all that is opposed to Him. And this is the good news of the covenant of grace. Though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, And though it is true that the wages of sin is death, and that no mere man can be justified through keeping the law, God has provided a Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord, and salvation is given as a free gift to all who turn from their sins and believe upon Him. Do you remember how near to the start of the sermon I said, the covenant of grace is not without law? Law and grace, law and gospel are not contrary to one another, they sweetly comply. The question is, what role does the law play in the New Covenant? Well, now I hope that you can see it. The law, it shows us how we ought to live. The law also shows us our sin and sends us running to Christ for forgiveness. And note this, the Spirit of God does also regenerate and renew us, making us willing and able to believe upon Christ and to do that which He has commanded. Though corruption still remain. 
The Spirit sanctifies us to be obedient to God's moral law, being moved by our spirit-wrought love for God and by our gratitude for the salvation that has been freely given to us through faith in Christ Jesus. Those who love God, what will they do, says John? They will keep His commandments. May the Lord help us in this. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your law and for how it is used in our lives to show us the way to go and to convict us of sin so that we might run to Christ for forgiveness. As it pertains to this first of the Ten Commandments, O Lord, I pray that You would help us to understand clearly what it forbids and what it requires. I pray that You would cause us to turn from sin once it is known to us. And I pray that You, by Your Spirit, would give us the strength to live in obedience to this first commandment. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. God, we love You. Increase our love for You. May You truly be supreme. May You be honored as God. May we have You as our God. May You be, O Lord, our greatest love. May all of our satisfaction ultimately come for You, though we enjoy the things of this world which You have graciously given. May You be supreme to us, O God. So help us to keep this law from the heart. We confess that we have violated it in thought, word, and deed, and so we are so very grateful for Christ. But now move us to be grateful so much so that we live in obedience to You. We cannot do it in our own strength, O Lord. We need You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.